Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We have been working our way through um, the book of Samuel, and this evening we're coming to chapter 11. You'll find this on page 262, and we're beginning our reading at verse 1. Second Samuel chapter 11, and beginning our reading at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your face, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger 
when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king. Then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had said, sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Israel uh, had been at war with the Ammonites. You'll remember that um, after the king of the Ammonites had died, a man named Nahash, uh, David decided to send a, a, an, act of gest- uh, an act of kindness, a gesture of his kindness towards the king of the Ammonites. He wanted to uh, continue that bond that he had with his father. And he wanted to show uh, his kindness because he had dealt loyally with him. David wanted to reciprocate that and to continue uh, that relationship uh, with, his, with the heir. But when the king of the Ammonites and his advisors uh, received these ambassadors who were coming to comfort him, they ridiculed this gesture of kindness. They shaved half their beards and they sh- uh, cut off half their clothes in order to humiliate them and to make fun of their gesture of trying to comfort them in the loss of their king. But all of this was really not just an attack on the ambassadors. It was an attack on David's mercy. It was an attack on David's kindness. And so a war ensued afterwards. The Ammonites hired the Syrians. And there is this war that is taking place between Israel and the Ammonites. And really, as you read through 2 Samuel, that's what is happening here between chapters 10 through chapter 12. And it's been telling us about multiple battles, and it's actually going uh, quite quickly. But when we come to chapter 11, everything slows right down. And the, the narrative shifts, the focus is shifting from what's going on publicly out in the battlefield to what is going on privately back in Jerusalem. And we are told about David uh, and his own fall uh, into sin. And this evening we want to look at a very different battle that was happening than the battle with the Ammonites. And it is a very different battle that has a very different outcome for David. Because in this battle, David is going to lose. Uh, It is a battle with sin uh, that takes over uh, David and has him uh, under its dominion. And so as we're looking at this this evening, we want to see that because we cannot conceal our sin from God, uh, we are to call upon him instead. 
rather than trying to simply cover up our wrongdoing, we should turn to the Lord uh, seeking his mercy. And we want to look at chapter 11 in a couple of thoughts. We want to think about the chain of events that takes place. And then we want to think about not just the chain of events, but then we want to think about the cover-up that David himself engages in. And then finally, we want to give a consideration of what has just happened. Well, first we have the chain of events. Why is it that people sin? You young people, why do you think people sin, that we see sin happening day by day by day? Why is it that people do wrong things? One answer for that is given to us in the letter of James. James writes these words, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. We sin because our desires are bent in that direction. And when sin is conceived and gives birth, it ultimately leads to death. James is saying that our hearts are bent away from God's will. The reason why people do wrong things is because they don't want necessarily what God wants. And because they want what they want and they will do what they have to to get it, they will do all sorts of terrible things in the process because they're focused on themselves and not on others, not on what God says ultimately. And as you look at David here, you see that happening in a very real way because David is lured and enticed by his own desires and it ultimately leads him to doing a very terrible things. And that is uh, what we see happening here. It tells us in verse 1 that in the spring of the year, that is the time when kings would resume their, their battles, when uh, they would pick up their campaigns, their military exploits, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent his commander-in-chief, Joab, to fight. But David did not go. There's no explanation as to why David did not go. But what is being emphasized here is that it is in that context that all of this is going to ensue. He is back in Jerusalem in the comforts of his own home. He's not where he would typically be, but rather he is back in Jerusalem. And it is while he is back in Jerusalem that on one occasion, as he's walking on the roof of his own palace, overlooking his own city of Jerusalem, that he happens to see a woman on her roof bathing. Uh, and she is described as a very beautiful woman. But what happens there is that David sees this happening and he's intoxicated by it. He's excited by what he sees. Now what David should have done in that moment is he should have averted his gaze. He should have looked away. That's what David should have done. That's what Job uh, uh, covenanted to doing. You remember in Job that it says that he made a covenant with his eyes, that he would not look on a young woman, that he would not look upon a virgin. Job recognized the danger of giving himself over in this way. And so he was very careful about what it was that he uh, lent himself towards or what he was looking at. But David didn't do that here. David just by chance happened to see this woman who was beautiful bathing. And his glance became a gaze. And his gaze became something that stirred in his heart, something that excited him in his heart and in his desires. And that glance became a gaze, and that gaze became a curiosity, wondering who is this woman? 
And actually, one of his informants tells him something uh, about this woman. They tell him three things about her. They give her name. She's named Bathsheba. Is this not Bathsheba? Is this not the daughter uh, of Eliam? Uh, it says there, uh, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? Who was Eliam? Eliam was one of the mighty men of David. But more than that, Eliam was the son of one of David's trusted advisors, a, ma a man named Ahithophel, one of David's closest advisors and counselors, uh, is uh, this uh, woman is connected to by family, which explains why she's so close to the royal palace. She has high connections to the royal court. She has someone that is politically connected uh, in Jerusalem. So this is someone that uh, has strong connections with uh, David's court, David's royal advisor. This is someone who uh, David would know. But more than that, she is identified not just as the daughter of Eliam, but she is identified as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The Hittite is simply emphasizing that at some point in his ancestry, Uriah's family had come to join the covenant people of God. That he was a Gentile, but that he was someone who was wrapped into the people of God over time and someone who had uh, identified the God of Israel as his God. Uriah was also one of David's mighty men. But all of this is emphasizing that Bathsheba was a married woman. In other words, she was off limits. She was already married. And any curiosity in David should have been arrested at that point. It should have been stopped in its tracks because he should have known this woman is married. And the law of God is very clear about marriage, that it is to be protected. We read the law of God there this evening. What does it teach us? Thou shalt not covet. But more than that, thou shalt not commit adultery. This was a line that David had not yet transgressed. We've already highlighted that David sinned in other ways. He was a polygamist. He had multiple marriages. But David had not taken another man's wife and so this is a boundary that David has, uh, a, a, a line in the sand that David himself has not yet crossed. But here he is being told all this information about Bathsheba. And it should have been enough to stop him, to arrest him in his tracks and to say this is a no-go uh, no zone. This is not right. But instead, David's heart has been stirred. And that curiosity has become a craving. Instead of stopping this, David is given over further to it. And so we are told that as a result, uh, David was in the grip of his desires, and he's not able to thoughtfully or calmly think this through. Instead, he is pulled by his passions, and he becomes the very kind of king that the prophet Samuel was warning of. You remember what Samuel warned about when he talked about kings? They will be characterized by taking. They will take. And here is David, a man in position and power, who is now characterizing himself by taking what he wants. David is controlled by his passions. And uh, so he uh, is described as uh, taking this woman to himself. It tells us that he sent for Bathsheba, he took her, he lay with her, and then he sent her home. 
Uh, what we're told here in this account is actually very brief. It, it doesn't tell us anything about David's feelings for Bathsheba. It actually is very guarded about t- not telling us of anyone's feelings. All it's telling us is the facts. What actually happened? That we need to look at what they did. What were their actions? And David's actions here show his guilt. He was taking another man's wife. He was breaking God's law. He was a man who was controlled by his passions. What are we to take away when we think about David's terrible sins here? A number of things. One thing that we should take away is the danger of sin itself. That we should realize that sin is something that is crouching at the door. That we should recognize that David is literally described in scripture as a godly man. He was a man who was after God's own heart. A man of integrity. A man who pursued righteousness. And everything that we've learned about David up to this point, we see him as a man who is seeking God's will. And yet, in spite of everything that David has done, his track record does not protect him from the vulnerability of sin. It does not prevent him from being given over to sin. And we see that happening here in David. What that should highlight for us is that if a godly man like David can fall morally like this, then the same is true for any believer. Any one of us who professes faith can still fall into terrible sin. That we too are prone to wander, as some of the old hymns would say. That we are people that can be given over to our desires and to act in a reckless and uh, an unguarded way. Uh, That's what we see happening. And we shouldn't even think that just because we're part of the new covenant that somehow we're more protected than David was. Just because we're part of the new covenant doesn't mean that we can't sin uh, like David. Because the same scripture teaches us that even those in the new covenant are to take heed. That if we think we stand, we're to take heed lest we fall. So there is a, a, a warning about the danger of sin. David fell in a terrible way. But we should look at that and realize, so could I. So could any of us. Apart from the grace of God, so go I. And so there is a, a warning as we're looking at what happens in David's life of the, of the awful danger of sin. It can be a stranglehold on a person and drive them to do things that we would think never possible. It also teaches us something about the deceitfulness of sin. David could not calmly see the situation for what it was. Instead, David was looking at it in terms of simply what he wanted. He was, he was uh, a man after his own passions. He was blind to the consequences of his actions. In fact, this is how uh, sin works, isn't it? Sin is deceptive because it, it doesn't show us what is going to be the end result of it. It doesn't show us what are going to be the consequences of it. Instead, it simply operates on the mindset If it doesn't hurt, it doesn't hurt anybody. So why not? If it doesn't harm anyone, what's the the problem? And so it's trying to justify something as though it isn't, isn't significant. 
Sin blinds us to the consequences. It doesn't matter in the moment what God's will is. And that's what happens with David. The truth was, though, that David's actions did have far-reaching consequences. Not just for Uriah, who will ultimately die. Not just for Bathsheba in losing her husband. But it would have consequences for David's family. It would have consequences for David's royal court and his relationship with Ahithophel. It would have consequences for the nation of Israel as a whole. In fact, the consequences of David's sins reverberated as far as his responsibilities reached. Every area of David's life was impacted by this sin. And so rather than simply saying it was just a fling, it was just a harmless thing, what's the big deal? Sin blinds us to that consequence and simply says to do whatever feels right. But here, as the rest of the book of Samuel goes on, and we enter into what are known as the dark days of David's life, we're simply looking at the shadow of what comes as the consequence of his own sin. So we see here not just the danger of sin, a godly man falls in a terrible way, but we're also seeing something of the deceptiveness of sin. David didn't see it. He saw a beautiful woman. He wasn't, he wasn't concerned about what this would mean by taking her. Instead, he was simply driven by his own passions. He was blind to the consequences. But we also see the downward trajectory of sin as well. David lacked the inward resources to stop this downward spiral. Sin is something that doesn't stand still. David's glance became a gaze. His gaze became a curiosity. His curiosity became a craving. His craving was something that was consummated in his sin. David is a man that was driven more and more, and his actions become more and more complicated and compounded. His sins become because he is driven by self. He is driven by his own desires. And so we see that sin doesn't stand still. Instead, it keeps compounding. It keeps growing. It causes us to depart further and further from God's ways. Like David, sexual sin is part of many of our stories. And we can look at it in many ways, whether it's in divorce, whether it's in cohabitation. Sexual brokenness and unfaithfulness is part of many of our experiences. But one way in which we see sexual sin come to life in our own lives, and not just in the wider culture, but even in the church, is in that area of pornography. It's no, it's no secret that pornography is prevalent in our world today. And many uh, acknowledge that it is part of their life. Not only is it something prevalent, but according to one uh, survey, the vast majority of young adults Look at pornography as something either acceptable or something neutral. In other words, they look at it as something as it doesn't harm anyone. What's the problem? The same mindset that ultimately is driving David here. It is the blindness to the consequences of sin. But the truth is, is that pornography does harm. Not only is pornography attached to human trafficking and slavery. Not only is it dehumanizing of people, but pornography is something that feeds shame. 
It's something that tears apart and destroys relationships. It's something that compromises one's own integrity of their faith as they seek to honor God and live a hidden life. Pornography does impact us. It does have consequences. And so as we think about what has happened here to David, it's a story that is simply bringing to the surface something of the the brokenness, the sin that characterizes so many of our lives. What do we do when we see that we have fallen short of the glory of God? What do we do when we see that we too have sinned against God? The story of David is a dark story, and yet it is one that is ultimately leading us to discover something of God's grace. It's real, and it meets us in our need. And so here we see the chain of events. How is it that David could sin like this? David was that man who who refused to do wrong things. He was that man who wouldn't take Saul's life. And now here is David orchestrating the murder of one of his own mighty soldiers in order to cover his own self. How he has fallen. And yet it's showing us something of the human heart. That we can be people who are driven uh, after sin and its intoxicating desires. Jesus himself says the eye, of the, lamp, uh, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Jesus is saying there what we bring in is what comes out. That as, as we are meditating and looking at and uh, viewing the world, it shapes us. And that we need to be concerned and and careful about what it is that we fixate upon. So there is the chain of events in David's sin. But there's also uh, the cover-up. And we read of that in verses 6 and following. Uh, David then sent Joab and said, uh, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now up to this point, we've known David as a man of integrity. And at this point, if we didn't know the story already, we might suspect that when David meets with Uriah, he is going to tell him what has happened. That now that his secret sin is going to become public, David, as a man of integrity, is going to lay himself at the mercy of Uriah and tell him what he's done wrong and to hope that Uriah can forgive him. But instead, when Uriah comes to David, David simply asks him about how the war is going. He asks him if there's peace with Joab. Is there peace uh, with our men? How are things going? And after exchanging pleasantries, he sends him home to his wife. In other words, David is trying to cover up his steps. He's trying to cover his tracks so that it can't be made known, but rather this child will be uh, attributed to, uh, to Uriah. So David shows actually no signs of remorse at all, uh, but sends him home, hoping uh, that he is uh, able to cover up his sin. There is no uh, indication as to how Uriah interprets any of these uh, instructions or this whole situation. Again, uh, we're not told about how people are feeling or thinking in these, just what happens. And Uriah ultimately uh, does not go home. Uh, He did not uh, go home, and so David's plan uh, fails. When David hears about this, he asks uh, Uriah about it. And Uriah answers uh, by calling attention to the inappropriateness of doing such a thing. But then he also makes a very interesting uh, uh, oath 
uh, by calling on David's name twice or David's life twice. Uh, an unusual oath that calls twice uh, David's life to attention uh, about what he is doing and not doing. What is clear, though, is, is that Uriah uh, will not go home. And more than that, that Uriah's response has no impact on David himself. So the cover-up that David plans fails. But there's a plan B. David then tries to get him drunk uh, and then to send him home. But again, that plan also fails. And as one person highlights, a drunk Uriah is better than David here in this situation. He's more upright than even David uh, sober. And so David moves on to a third plan. After failing to send him home, after failing to get him drunk, uh, uh, and then send him home, he comes up with a third plan in verses 14 and following. He writes a letter and he sends it uh, back to Joab by the hand of Uriah. David is becoming even more desperate to protect himself here. And he's trusting either that Uriah can't read or that he won't read this letter. But he sends that letter back by Uriah asking Joab to kill him, uh, to orchestrate it so that he is killed in battle. And Joab, again, we don't know how much he knew of the situation. But Joab is going to carry this through. He is going to send some of his troops into a mission and sacrifice the lives of many in order to ensure that Uriah dies. And all of this, as he sends word back to David, uh, he, he is telling him uh, what happens and he anticipates David's anger about how he carries it out. That he stormed the wall and that his men were in a vulnerable situation. Many lives were lost. But anticipating David's anger, he explains that Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And when David hears this, instead of sorrowing, instead of grieving what he has ordered, it tells us that David sends word back to Joab saying, do not let this trouble you. In other words, to say, this is what happens. This is just the way things go. Accept it and move on. Literally, David is saying, do not let this be evil in your eyes. And David, in all of this, shows something of a hardness and unrepentance to his own sins and where it's leading him. He's taken another man's wife. He's killed a man in order to cover up his sins. And then he has the, the gumption to say, don't let this be evil in your eyes. But all of this is not unnoticed before God. The chain of events that leads David's sin, the cover-up that David ensues by having Uriah put to death, it seems like David's actions have been successful because it tells us in verse 26 that he, uh, after that period of formal lamentation uh, and mourning over the grief of uh, Uriah, David took Bathsheba, she became his wife, and he bore a son. And so David seems to have successfully covered all his missteps, and no one needs to know what he has done. <coughs> the penalty for adultery in the law was death. David has escaped, it seems. But it tells us right at the end, in verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It may have seemed that David had successfully covered his steps, but the account tells us that it was displeasing to God. David said, don't let this displease you or trouble you. 
Don't let this be evil in your eyes. But it ends with an account saying it was evil in God's eyes. David might think what he wants to think, but it's God's verdict that ultimately matters. And that is ultimately what we all need to live in light of. That if we simply live at the short-term mindset, our sins will find us out. We will have to give an account that God sees and knows how we live. And God will render to each one according to their works, as the scripture says. And so even though God doesn't do something right now, it doesn't mean that God is not doing anything. It is God is giving us opportunities to repent. He is searching the heart and giving us opportunities to turn to him. And so uh, uh, the fact that there is a God, uh, we should know that we cannot escape his knowledge. There is the consideration then of recognizing that our actions are accountable before God. But more than that, there is the acknowledgement or the consideration that God doesn't just see, God intervenes. And that's what is so beautiful about the life of David. David is a man like you and me. He was a man who sinned. But God didn't leave him in his sins. Like our first parents, God pursued them when they hid themselves after sinning. And so he is going to chase after David too. And he is going to confront him about his sins in order that he would repent and find God's grace. David will not be left to himself covering up his own guilt, but rather God would ultimately expose him so that he would see his need and find God's mercy as well. God's grace, what is so beautiful then about this life of David is that God's grace is available to even those who have been caught up in sexual sin. It's not as though there is a bar upon which if we have committed certain sins, they are the unforgivable but that if we humble ourselves, recognizing, so am I, then I can turn and I can know God's forgiveness. Because the same God who saw what David did is the same God who in chapter 12 will pardon David of his sins. He's the God who not only sees, he saves. And so if you're sitting here this evening as someone who is struggling with sexual sin, then don't deny it. Don't ignore it, but recognize that our sin is serious, that we are people living before God. But also don't despair, thinking that our sin is beyond God's realm of help. God is a God who saves. He's a God who restores, just as he does with David. God works with broken people, and he shows them his mercy. And so when we look to God, for forgiveness. He gives it. And we can have new life in him. We can have peace and joy uh, by his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the life of David, that we would realize how uh, powerful sin is. And we pray, Lord, that we would realize uh, not only something about David, but that we would recognize uh, sin in our own lives and our need of a real Savior who deals with real sin, with real guilt. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us with our own shame, with our own uh, shortcomings, not to be hardened, but rather to humble ourselves, uh, to recognize that you are a God who does not leave us uh, with our, our fig leaves trying to cover our shame, 
but that you are the God who clothes us in the garments of righteousness, in the, the, the covering of the Lamb of God. So go before us, we pray in Jesus' name.